On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about moist Dr. Susie and Ublek. It is a thing. Your ideal BMI might actually be a little bit higher than you thought it was. And tonight, we're going to talk about last week tonight. Uh, tonight. Let's do it. Hello, welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 132, recorded May 11th, 2016. I think we've all come to recognize and know the next part of the show, which is we have our regular, generally regular host with us this week. We've got Christian Copley Salem, PhD candidate. regular? (laughs) Well... In so many ways. Uh, I was referring to the lack of Dr. Dell Jackson, but we have almost everyone with us. Uh, Christian Copley-Salem, how are you, sir? I am fantastic. How are you? I am living the dream. I am Scott Barnett. Christian and I are both slogging our way through our own PhD programs, which happen to be the same program. Um, <laughs> our own unique ones that are identical. It is. Christian and I just found out today. That well, uh, and we've got Carolina Balkenbush, registered dietitian, Las Vegas, Nevada, food blogger, extraordinaire, extraordinaire, <laughs> carolinaskitchen.com. Hello, Carolina. Hello, gentlemen and ma'am. Uh, as I was saying, Christian and I just found out we're both in the cell molecular pharmacology and physiology program at the University of Nevada, Reno, and technically part of the School of Medicine, but it sounds pretentious when I say it. So we're at the <laughs> University of Federino. Uh We just found out today that they are based on recommendations from an outside group that kind of reviews part of being an accredited college university and programs. You, they have to, they have outsiders come in and review your program and say whether or not you're up to snuff. Not only do they say we're up to snuff, they said they're pushing our students too hard and that we're supposed, they recommended that we all take 16 credits less to get our PhDs. But we were we were informed not to worry because those rules would not be recti- retroactive for Christian and I, and we, we, we shouldn't feel bad about having taken all those extra classes. Oh, God. Hey. Yeah. Were you there for that part of the conversation, Christian? No, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking oh, about. Oh, I, I thought, for with, some reason, I thought you were there for all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So don't worry. We're fine. We, we don't get to take less classes we we're already <laughs> we don't going. get to go back in time take less classes and then arrive here being dumber than we are now precisely I like that. yes <laughs> um what'd you guys do this week anything fun anything interesting fun and interesting man it's it's almost like we should expect you to ask us this every week <laughs> i know i got bit by a dog oh no well what happened? i mean it, um it was really my fault and not the dog's fault um I was playing with my friend's dog that I tend to vicariously live through as a dog owner. Um, so I steal the dog and I go walking with the dog and I love this dog and um, this dog is super awesome and super smart and she's well-trained. Sure sounds like it. She's super awesome. So what's happening is I'm playing tug with her and she likes those. Uh, you know what Kong is? Oh yeah. Kong is a brand. It's the most disgusting food toy on the planet. <laughs> You don't put food in him because that's gross. But You're supposed to. They always say, put a treat in the middle, and then you got, like, rotten dog snot food in there for three months that the dog can't get out. But sorry, yes, Kong. Yeah, it's gross. And she, we, he doesn't put food in them, but she just loves this bone-shaped Kong toy, and it's, like, her favorite thing in the universe. And she loves to, to pick it up in her mouth and poke you with it and be like, hey, play tug with me. So I'm playing tug, and if you say drop it, she's trained to let go. And she 99.999% of the time will let go and look at you for you to throw it. So I said, drop it. And instead of, and her mouth flacked up on it. And so I reached down on the, the toy to grab the center of the toy so I could throw it when I came out of her mouth. Well, she wasn't quite done chewing at it. And so her mouth came down full force on my thumb while I basically shoved my thumb in her mouth and I just screamed the most incredible string of obscenities you have ever heard. And it left my thumbnails basically half black from it. And she was freaked out. And I was like, no, it's not your fault. It's my fault. So, yeah, I got I got bit. Very thorough and clinical, Christian. It, it yes. sounded like you were, like, giving, like, talking to a prosecutor. You're like, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the dog's mouth went onto <laughs> my finger. The um, So, but you'll, you'll be all better. Just a little owie. Yeah, it, it is my – the. Thumb I hold my guitar pick with, so it, it did put me out of commission for like three days. But. Yeah, 
Well, if you watch Game of Thrones this week, everyone has pain. Not everyone has to suffer, though. So you can, you're can, you choosing to suffer when you play now, Christian. FYI. I have never, <laughs> never seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, oh, man, my dad saw game, saw, ha- game, saw Hamilton live last week. I'm so jealous. <gasps> no, what? How? I know, and he's not even a head of state. Your favorite, Carolina, right? <laughs> it is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he just paid a lot for a ticket, like, because the tickets are sold out, but it, it's such, it's just like the whole Ticketmaster thing. It's no different on Broadway. You just, there has to be a better way. Like, we've put a man on the moon sort of thing. Like, how can we avoid unscrupulous scalpers from just anything that's popular, soaking up all the tickets, selling them for four times their face value? It's not good for the the people performing who put all their heart and soul into it. They're not getting the extra money. You're out all this extra money. And the, the person making the most money is just some middleman who's just sitting there on a computer hitting refresh and buying as many tickets as they can. Like it's a, there's got to be a better way. I, I don't understand we haven't cracked that yet. So anyways, yes, he paid way too much. Yeah, I think he paid like 500 bucks for a ticket. Like that's how much you have to, and that's not even wow. like the primo tickets. Like that's just what it costs to see it if you d- didn't buy your ticket a year in advance. So, but he said it was incredible. He said it was everything you would hope it would be and it was just, uh, just fabulous. Speaking of incredible, can I say this real quick? Of course. We got a new comment. What? iTunes uh, from Andres. Thank you, Andres. Uh, it said, I love, oh, Carolina, you're mentioned in here again. I love oh. this cast of characters breaking down real science and debunking popular beliefs of science. The info is accessible on many levels and entertaining. Thank you. Even Bash is good for a laugh, which I love that. That's, that is actually <laughs> the highest public compliment we've ever gotten for Bash, and that is not an exaggeration. No, pretty Even much everybody ba- hates it. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Let's be clear. Here she goes. I am only writing this review because Carolina's amazing show recap this week. Watch out, Del. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> oh, thank you, Andres. Thank you indeed. Um, so there's that. And um, uh, what else we got here? Oh, <laughs> what else do we got here? So um, she left us five stars. We officially have a five-star rating in iTunes. And there's a very important reason why you should rate us as well, and it's not the normal reason here. And uh, hope everyone's sitting down, but uh, there is an announcement that needs to be made, and it's a, a fairly substantial one. Oh, God, wait a minute. I think I know what it is. Yes? You got a pet frog. <laughs> I have too many pet hobbies is part of the problem. Um, but none of them being make, frogs like, an currently. automatic cat feeder thing? Like- <laughs> yes. I know. That's actually like still 80% finished. I don't even want to go into that. There's an issue with a mount that I haven't cracked yet. So um, the Beta Sandwich Science podcast, as we currently know it, will no longer exist in three weeks. Uh, I am going to be leaving the show permanently. I, um, I ha- We've been doing it for three years. It's actually been on the air five years. We've been doing it three years almost every week. Uh, and we have 134 episodes, we're 132 right now, and um, it's just time to move on to other projects. It's been like the most incredible thing, and uh, uh, don't if you love the show, don't fret quite yet. It's uh, it's not over like you think it is. I'm going to be leaving for sure, but um, I've got other projects I'm working on. I want to work on my other podcasts. I've got dissertation. i got all this sort of stuff going on, and it's just time for me to move on, and I've loved every second of it. I've loved all of our listeners. Uh, we'll talk more about this. We still have three shows left if you include this one, but um, Christian is picking up the ball, and he is going to be moving forward with the show in a different manner. Christian, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, it's not really just me. It's Carolina and I are going to – basically, Scott is leaving, but Carolina and I are going to try to pick up the torch and carry it on into the future. Um, we, we're changing the show name. We're changing – actually, kind of we're changing everything. But what we hope is that the show will – each episode will be more focused and about a specific topic. So if you are looking for a topic – and this was – um, one of the things that Carolina was super excited to to suggest is that if you're looking for a specific topic, say, you know, the health of your heart or the health of your liver or whatever, and you want to hear us do basically what we do now, we'll include some interviews with scientists, we'll have, um, but it's going to be basically the same idea. We're going to be talking about stories, but all of those stories are going to relate to a specific topic each week. And we're going to call this new podcast 
the Ion Channel. Which Ooh. Oh, I really like that. <laughs> I'm, this is the first time, time I've heard, heard the name that. of the new show. We were having yeah. a lot of discussions about this, and um, and that's actually really creative and so good. In, within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to get a website up and running. Obviously, there will be a link you can click on on the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast to go to that new website, um, which will be something similar to the ionchannel.com, um, which I think is open. I will snap it. Snap. You better Action. do it. You better do it before this airs, because there's always some a hole. <laughs> right. that, believe yeah, me. Like, I'll just click on it right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, that's great. But yeah, so we should be we should be carrying it forward. We'll see how it goes, and if people are interested in listening, um, we will we'll keep it going. I have so, a very uh, important question because because Colby and I are far more interested in knowing whether. Or not, the poison cast will continue. <laughs> that one of my thank you, Carolina and Colby. One of my uh, big projects is to reboot the poison cast, or I should say, restart it and uh, and and keep that going. And as a matter of fact, I listened to a few of the old episodes, and I'm far too wordy. Uh, I realize this now, going through it. I, I hope everyone's sitting down, but I as because I'm tend to be to the point. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> But uh, uh, it's going to be a little more concise. It's going to be a little tighter, but the concept's going to be the same. So if you liked some of them and you're like, oh, it's going on a little too long, the shows are about 30 minutes. I want to get them down to about 20, down to the science, why poisons kill you, what they're doing. And uh, and uh, thank you for that, Carolina. That'll certainly be it. There'll be more information about the Ion Channel podcast, great name, and, um, uh, and about projects that we're all doing and the next show is going to be a regular show and then the last show which will be in two weeks uh i was hoping we could do something a little bit about kind of where we, who we are where we came from and why we um why we love science and and kind of just talk a little bit have it be just kind of a low-key last show about who we are and where we're going and uh then we'll do our thing yep so awesome. it's not you guys we love you and you we guys will continue to love, love each other yeah. <laughs> it's me i'm the one who doesn't like you no everyone's been incredible um yeah. We have listeners in multiple countries on multiple continents. It's just been everyone's been wonderful. But uh, I just I'm feeling itchy, and there's only so many hours in a day, and I just have to do uh, some other stuff right now. So, yep. You're yep. feeling itchy, like you have a rash. <laughs> I'm feeling emotionally itchy, which may be even worse than a rash. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> uh, yes. So, well, with that let's being scratch said, that itch with a little bit of. Oh, wait, I, I played nothing. the wrong one again. And you guys, they can't hear it this week. Wow, this is a major fail. Hold on. This is the right one. They still pew? Now. Pew! It wouldn't be the Beta Sandwich Science show <laughs> if I didn't get the title of the own podcast wrong and I didn't cue up the wrong music. So, that's just par for the course, as they say. <sighs> Indeed. So this this isn't even really a story. I just wanted to touch on this because friend of the show, Aaron Miller, he posted this on the Facebook page. Um, artificial meat company is trying to ramp up production of real artificial meat. Uh, we talked about this, you know, the $36,000 hamburger or whatever the case may be. Is, and he found an article where companies actually trying to mass produce it. But they're running into one major problem. And I think we may have discussed this when we talked about the artificial meat hamburger was that they still have to use fetal bovine serum, which we call FBS. Uh, Christian, Carolina, we all know if you work in a lab, if you want to grow cells, you need fetal bovine serum or, or fetal horse serum or or you, you need to use some sort of serum from an animal. It's completely chock full of uh, proteins and enzymes and other cofactors that you just really can't get right now outside of it. And if you serum starve cells, which we will often do to for a very specific reason, which makes sense why it's hard to grow without it, the cells stop dividing and they all kind of settle in the same state of mitosis where they're they're just nice and happy and they're not dividing. If you're trying to do experiments on cells, you don't want some in a different phase of mitosis because it, it can really affect your protein profile and all kinds of boring stuff like that. But if you serum starve them, they stop dividing and then they die after about 10 days, two weeks if you're very, very, very lucky. So yes, fetal bovine serum is still critical to growing cell cultures and uh, it's pretty hard to have a meat-free substance if you're using basically mm. horse blood <laughs> to grow it. Well, I'm, I'm shocked that they uh, don't have a substitute for that yet. 
Yeah, I, I just know it's really complex. There's a, there's a lot of proteins in there, uh, mm-hmm. and I think there's active enzymes in there. So they there's just you have to get that profile down and figure out exactly what is required for cell growth, the muscle growth, and then and then you have to yeah replicate that in you know in using bacteria or something. So, anyways, cool. Well, thank you, friend of the show, Aaron Miller, for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like our George Martin, which is a Beatles reference. If anyone doesn't get it, oh, the fourth Beatle. The fifth Beatle. The, that, that one. <laughs> there were four of them. <laughs> awesome. One of them was shot. What? That was... <laughs> like, two of the three of four... Two of the four of them are dead, I think. Well, yeah, we're only down to... I think... Well, the joke is we're down to the ones that nobody cares about anymore, but... Uh, yeah, Paul mm-hmm. McCartney, nobody cares about him. Yeah. Speaking of dying... Good! <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Woo-hoo. And we're out of that hole. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, very interesting new study out uh, today in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, apparently, uh, the lowest all-cause mortality risk that you can have is at a BMI, a body mass index, that is currently considered in the overweight range. So, ideal BMI, well, I guess I shouldn't call it ideal BMI, but the, the BMI at which you are the least likely to die of any cause is 27. Um, so, Ooh. BMI, body mass index, is is basically a tool that's used to assess your obesity. And it basically takes your um, weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. And then that's plotted on a chart. It feels so arbitrary. I wonder who came up with that. So, uh, who came up with it? Let me, let me tell you a little bit about the history of BMI. So, the, people have been interested in uh, defining or calculating obesity f- since the, the 19th century. And initially, there was this uh, statistical model uh, developed by a, a Belgian statistician named Adolphe uh, Quetlet. And he came up with the Quetlet Index of Obesity, which measured obesity by dividing a person's weight by the square of his or her height. And, you know, so that's basically what BMI is. But it wasn't really used very much. Um, before 1980, doctors used uh, weight for height tables, one for men and one for women that kind of had healthy ranges of weight for each inch of height. Um and then these these tables basically kind of morphed into BMI tables, and that became the standard measure of obesity in the 1980s. So it is kind of arbitrary. Um, but, but the public didn't really learn about the BMI tables until the late 1990s, and that's when the government basically launched an initiative to encourage healthy eating and exercise and kind of categorize people's BMIs into healthy ranges. So um, before 1998, the NIH um, had the – standard for overweight at a BMI of 27.8, but then it lowered it in 1998 to a level of 25. So now if you're, if your BMI is under 18.5, you're considered underweight. If it's between, um, basically 18.5 to 25, that's a healthy weight range. If it's between 25 and 30, you're overweight, um, between 30 and 35, that's obese. Um, over 35, it's morbidly obese. And then you can actually also be super obese, which is even higher than that. So they have like different stages of obesity. Um, can I say something? Well, we've all sure. talked about the, not absurdity, but the many pitfalls of the BMI system. Oh, yes. Like if I were a BMI of 19, I've got a chart up here right now, okay? Mm-hmm. I would weigh 132 pounds. If I weighed 132 pounds, I would look like I just came out of a concentration camp. I weighed 170 pounds in high school, and I was a thin kid in high school. So that to me is crazy. I would have a BMI of basically 25 when I was in high school, and I can assure mm-hmm. you I was a thin water polo playing kid. So this whole thing is a little funky to me, but sorry. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's... It's a good population level predictor, but it's not a very good individual predictor of, of, of I guess, health uh-huh. uh, because it's it's not directly measuring your body composition. 
You're not really looking at your body fat. So, I mean, it would probably be better in doctor's offices for doctors to look at your your risk of type 2 diabetes or heart disease by having some kind of a useful way of measuring your, your body fat, a reliable way of measuring body fat. But that's not really standard practice right now. I guess the most common thing is BMI at this point. But what's interesting is, so this, this study was done uh, in Denmark, and they looked at the BMI um, and, and I guess, death rates of people um, from back in the 1970s. And then they looked again, I believe, in the 1990s. And then again, um, more recently, over the past few years. And they found that from 1976 to 1978, um, your lowest mortality of any cause was at a BMI of 23.7, which is currently in like our healthy range. Uh-huh. And that was um, based on a sample size of 13,704 people. And then from 1991 to 1994, in that cohort, the ideal BMI increased just ever so slightly to 24.6. And that was from a sample size of almost uh, 10,000. And then most recently in the cohort from 2003 to 2013, uh, lowest mortality is found at a BMI of 27, which is technically in the overweight range. And that was out of a sample size of almost 100,000 people. It was 97,000 people. Uh, So pretty interesting there. So just to kind of put that in perspective, what that BMI would look like, um, I am five foot three which at 5'3", that would put me at an ideal weight of 152 pounds. Um, how tall are you guys? I'm somewhere between 5'10", 5'11". You can five, just say 5'10". I'm shrinking. I'm, I'm getting older. Sure. So that would mean your ideal weight would be 188 pounds. And Christian, what did you say? How tall you are? 5'11". 5'11", so 193. I am like, I am literally... 193.5 pounds. Wow. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I weighed myself this morning. Well, because my doctor in the whole high blood pressure, so I'm weighing myself and trying to get my weight down. And that's what I weighed. So, okay. So, so well, here's tell your what's... doctor to suck it then. You win. <laughs> well, I was 200 when she said that. So uh-huh. So it's interesting. I mean, if, if this finding is confirmed in other studies – possibly the World Health Organization would have to change its categories that are currently used to define overweight. Um, but but it's really interesting to to kind of look at why why that number has shifted up. And I guess one possible explanation would be that people who are in the overweight category are more likely to be screened for uh, risk factors for diabetes and heart disease. And so there's, you know, earlier intervention being done if they haven't, you know, anything like high cholesterol or um, insulin resistance. So, and then maybe that early care is helping them survive longer through cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And maybe there been an increased focus on, on exercise. It may be, even though people are weighing more, they're more guilty about it. And so they're exercising more. But they're still not eating perfectly, so you have that cardiovascular boost? It could be, maybe. I mean, I think overall as a population, we're exercising less. Maybe maybe we're doing organized exercise more, but I think the amount of time we spend in non-sedentary activities is organized. probably lower What's now that? than it was. Like I mean, like intentional, like going to a gym, Oh, like doing workouts, I think before we had okay. probably more walking and spent less time in front of screens or sitting at a desk. I don't know, that's... I don't have the data to back that up right now, but I do remember seeing studies that suggest that uh-huh. type of a correlation. Um, I mean, that seems to be a fairly logical explanation, but we'd have to actually look at it. And, and it's unfortunate because this is purely just looking at BMI. Um, the, the most recent two cohorts in this study, they actually did measure body fat as well. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, whether, I mean, I'm guessing probably body fat or waist circumference would be better indicators of health than just BMI on its own. But I think this is a very interesting study just to kind of show that, you know, the limitations of BMI and suggesting that uh, possibly being heavier isn't really that bad for you as long as you're maybe, you know, overall have good body composition. I'm ready for CNN's headline tomorrow. Oh, God. 
being fat is healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Oh, God. Well, speaking of terrible headlines. Boom. Boom. Slipped this is a good right day in. for segues. Like, we're on fire. Maybe we should quit the show more often than we do better segues. Anyway. <laughs> um, so I don't know if anyone in our audience has seen the recent John Oliver discussion on um, on science and science reporting in the media, which anyone who's listened to this show since the beginning knows that that's one of my, my pet peeves. I absolutely despise... Pretty much at this point, it's a blanket statement to say that I almost universally despise most popular science reporting done not by scientists. Like, if you just go to a newspaper or you go, which I don't even know if people read newspapers anymore. um, If you go to the web and you, particularly places like Facebook, and you look for science information there, unless you have liked, you know, nature.com, or whatever, you're going to get a range of reliable to unreliable bordering on flat out wrong. And um, it's interesting that right as I was watching, literally today, Scott sent me the thing today, I got around to watching the John Oliver video where he makes fun of a lot of science reporting and so on and so forth. Um, But Right as I'm watching this video, one of my friends on Facebook links me this article, not even just to me. He linked it on his page for everyone because he thought it was this great article. And the title of the article is The Myth of Self-Correcting Science. So if I said to somebody, self-correcting science is a myth, that would imply that science makes mistakes which I don't think anyone could argue with that as a premise. Science makes mistakes. Science is populated by human beings. Human beings make mistakes. But the real problem I have here is that when you say science isn't self-correcting and then you delineate certain science problems, you really got to look at how those problems were discovered. Um, it isn't kindergartners sitting in their classroom pointing at screens and laughing that's finding problems with scientific studies. Um, and so what I want to highlight real quick is we talked about the, the stem cell, the pluripotent stem cell article. I thought Scott talked about it where um, the researcher said you could just put acid on it and it would. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it was yeah, retracted. Was it change? Was it lower the pH or raise the pH? It was one of those. I think you, if you lower the pH, it was supposed to turn adult derived like like blood cells into stem cells, right? Something like that. And um, this particular article that I was reading from um, the Atlantic referenced psychology professor Mark Hauser, who was shown to have um, fabricated some data. There was a recent one. Uh, what was his name? Dietrich Staple. Staple. Um, it was a Dutch psychologist who. Dietrich Staple. Staple. Yeah. <laughs> literally lives in Denmark and was um, was forging data. Literally just fabricating data. Um, and so the article starts off with this particular thing, and it's interesting that if you watch the John Oliver video, he really goes directly into. Um, talking about some of these different fake, like, or scientific problems that people have people have reported, and this article literally then goes into all of the problems that science has encountered. But as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, yeah, but we we've already dealt with that. Yes, that's already being dealt with. Yes, it's already being dealt with. And what you find is that as you go through. Um, the items that he's claiming that science is not self-correcting on are items that scientists are actually self-correcting on, like p-hacking, okay? How many non-scientists are there who are leading the charge against p-values? That would be zero. It's the scientists themselves that are saying, and he actually brings up p-hacking as one of the problems. He's like, p-hacking which for people who don't know, I think we did a little segment on p-hacking before. P-hacking is just where you take a bunch of data and you look through the data to find some connection of the 
the points that will give you a statistical p-value. So you take 100 measurements, and then you find 10 of them that you can isolate and get a p-value out of. That's something that scientists have been concerned about for a long time. And we're taking steps to correct those the problems that are inherent to using to being stuck on p-values. Um, there's another one where he mentions publishing your raw data. And having gone through the, the, the mime of publishing a scientific article, you nowadays, particularly with proteomics, you have to publish your raw data. There's actually repositories now that have been set up for publishing raw data. Those repositories were set up by people in science. So as you go through this article, the next thing you find is the one comment where it kind of tries to, to save itself from its obvious irony, and that is it says, well, some of these were some of these problems were only found because of by whistleblowers and not by scientists. Well, guess who those whistleblowers were? The graduate students and the postdocs. I'm sorry, but those are scientists. <laughs> like to say that science isn't self-correcting because graduate students figured some things out. Wait a minute. No, that's exactly what the process is. Graduate students, undergraduates, postdocs, PIs, um, principal investigators, all those people are involved in science. And the fact that this article literally goes through, um, there's several other ones that we want, we don't need to talk about all of them specifically, but there's, it goes through all of these items that were all discovered and known by scientists. These are things we know. Scott and I have talked about p-values on the show. We talked about p-values at work. I deal with the p-value thing because I do big data sets. And if you have 10,000 data points and you find one that happens to have a good p-value, there are statistical tests that you can do to keep from p-hacking that. You have to actually test the whole set to itself before you can test individual sets. So science is fully aware of this, the problems that exist with it. We know that people are human. We know that, that people make mistakes and that science publications are incorrect, which is one of the main focuses of the John Oliver point. And it's, he does it extremely funny. You should listen to it. Um, he points out when people say, oh, there's a study that shows that, you know, farts, smelling farts can help cure cancer or um, like oxytocin makes you love people more and be a better person. And all of these single one-off studies that people are using to make a point about something, you really can't look at a single study. That's not the way science works. Science is a body of knowledge and you have to accept all of that information. You can't read one study and say, oh, I know everything there is to know about that topic. That study has a hundred references in it, all of which are necessary to truly understand that, that field. And, um, I think John Oliver does a great job of pointing out how um, how that's done and the way that scientists look at science and the misconceptions that people have about science and the way that science reporting is just terrible, awful. Um, so I recommend his video, and there you go. Completely agree. You know, part of the reason I think that undergraduates, graduate students, and postdocs are the ones that are finding a lot of these errors, it's because we're the ones – that are incrementally moving science forward. We aren't the PIs making these broad stroke movements to to try to get our 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 Nobel Prize or our paper in Nature. We're trying to just get a paper published, and so we're much more likely to look at an interesting study and either replicate the results for first or follow their methodology to the letter so that we can get the the experiment down before we run our set of experiments in a similar manner. And, and it, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say it's even more important because if someone puts out a study and they're wrong, any study that's built on that isn't going to work. So you don't have to necessarily when I when somebody says oh something isn't replicated, they may not have done the exact experiment, but if 10 years down the line people are expecting this protein to be phosphorylated in this condition, and it never is, somebody's going to be like, this never happened. So then you'll have four or five papers that say, this doesn't actually happen. And we have lots of that in the literature. You have tons of papers where one guy says one thing and one guy says the opposite. And it's 
eventually you will amass enough information to be able to say, well, this protein's probably not. So the original paper may not have even been faked. It's just wrong. So, yep. Yep. And to Scott's point, grad students are like the worker bees. PIs do work in the lab sometimes, but more often than not, they're doing thinking about the experiments writing that need grants, to be done. Getting money the to the grants, lab. Designing like the overall setup. But if you're talking about the person who, you know, did the Western blot, it's most likely the grad student or even their undergrad minion. Like it so Yep. That's so. so grad students are the perfect people to catch those kind of things. Yep. So cool. Thanks, Christian. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, just do last week tonight on YouTube, and uh, and if you type in science, it will come right up. It was just this last week, but it is uh, an absolute pleasure to watch a civilian reporter or commentator, comedian, nail it and actually use the word p value in their article in their in their story. It was uh, jaw dropping when he said p. When I saw p hacking come up, I was like, no way. <laughs> And so. his explanation of it is simple and accessible and, like, it's brilliant. And he's yeah. funny as all get out. So. Very, very cool here. We so. posted it on our Facebook page as well. We did. Uh, did we not? com slash – or Facebook.com slash podcast. You can see it there as well. So, uh, well, thanks, Christian. Um, speaking of comedians and laughing and having a good P-value – um, it's I'm not going, a bowel movement. <laughs> the uh, well, it's not too dissimilar. So okay, so th- I got the story from uh, originally from Gizmodo, but they were uh, they were referencing a plus one article which I pulled up as well. I just want to give credit there. So um, I'm going to say a word, uh, fellow co-host as well as listeners at home. When I say the word, think, get your visceral response. When I say the word, what is your what immediately comes to your mind? And I'm not talking about. Other words, just do you have a positive or a negative association with it? What's your gut response? The word is, drumroll please, moist. Yeah, that's gross. It's a gross word. Christian, what did you say? Don't care. You don't care at all. In in Carolina, you just hear that word and you're just like, ugh. Yeah, I just imagine like a sweaty, cold, sweaty palm. A cold, sweaty palm. Okay, cool. So... Up to you're not alone, Carolina. Up to twenty percent of American English speaking individuals are very adverse to the word moist. You know, it's interesting because in in theory, this is just a word. It's nothing special about it. It's not something that has no negative connotations like Hitler or murder. It's just a word that it's an adjective really that's describing a noun, you know? I found this article really interesting because I had a friend in college, not this time I went to college, many years ago when I went to college, and she hated that word. It just it it just grossed her out to every possible level here. So when I saw this, I had to read it here. And as I said, this was this is an actual study in PLOS One by Dr. Paul Thibodeau. I'm going to say Thibodeau. Uh, he's a professor of psychology at Oberlin College, and after conducting... Five different experiments over four years with over 2,500 participants. So this is a big N here. And by because he's – well, so we played – my very first degree was a psychology degree, and I can almost guarantee I know how we got this N, which was we were routinely during my psychology degree required to fill out long questionnaires at length multiple times a semester – from various graduate students or a professor running an experiment. So if you have a classroom, a, a basic psychology 101 classroom of 340 people, it doesn't take long to get that end of 2,500. For us, it would take a lifetime to get 2,500 myometrial samples, you know. Um, so in any case, that's probably how he did it, but uh, but I don't know for sure. So, so he had 2,500 participants, and what he found was that people were adverse to – moist when they were adverse adverse to this word they were also adverse to other words associated with moistness like phlegm and vomit Ugh. and he, he do both those words get you too uh, yeah <laughs> but <laughs> and, what's odd is the word hoist even though it has that sounds like it's not a sound uh, thing i am going to bring that up okay good call um so this led him to believe that the disgust value of the word is related in part to the association with the bodily function. In other words, you know, like people weren't associating the word moist with 
brownies, right? Mm-hmm. They were expressed that they that they had a disgust feelings and that they did not have it, as you just said, disgust feelings towards words like foist or rejoiced. So it wasn't a syllable. I mean, that's kind of easy to to um, to separate. And they also likely they were not uh, or I'm sorry, nor were they irked by words related to sex like vagina or horny it was definitely the moistness by itself and uh so that's one finding it was a disgust factor that they think it may be associated with also this group of researchers found that there was a social relationship in regards to the word uh, aversion many participants they were showing it's, it's so funny they were take they took a people magazine video so it wasn't the magazine so it was a video in 2013, where the sexiest men alive were saying the word moist, while other group, another group watched a control video that showed people saying the word to describe cake. So people who watched the first video were more put off. So you can have the sexiest men alive saying the word moist, and you can have another group of just average dudes saying, oh, that was a moist cake. And they were more off-put by the word by itself, even when beautiful men were saying it here. So uh, it's very interesting that there's there's this other aspect here to it here. The study also found that people expressed um, more aversion if they were younger, educated, and female. Carolina, I think hmm. you take all three of those boxes. <laughs> um, although there seemed to be little difference among populations regarding other factors such as religion or political ideology. So if you're an atheist or you're a Christian, that didn't seem to matter nearly as much, or if you're Republican or Democrat, as if you were young, female, and educated. So I don't know why you guys hate that word so much here. Um, Listen, just real quick, let me just interject. Did you know that the words moister, moistest, moistful, moistless, moistly, and overmoist? Yeah. I'm I moistly like this story. Moistly is the adverb. So great. Yeah. I, I almost <laughs> feel like that needs to be part it's of the show title nice. somehow. Moistly. Yeah. <laughs> um so ultimately he's not quite sure why. He thinks there could be an evolutionary component. That's always the fallback if you're not sure what happened. Um because um, uh, an evolutionary component dealing with disgust in our body, you know, having an instinct to to move away from vomit and diarrhea. Uh, it helps stop spread disease, so it's a good trait to pass along one way or another. That's just kind of a a, a thought that he vomited out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, who knows? But uh, I thought that was uh, thought that was interesting, huh? That's a fun one. Indubitably, forty two minutes, forty two minutes, and one more story. Should I do it? Should I? Let me look here. Yeah, this one's short. We're getting one more, folks. Why not? Let's have it. I'm out of here soon enough. I got to burn up all my stories, huh? So, <laughs> so quitter. Um, a quitter, exactly. So, uh, if I say the word non-Newtonian fluid, does that make uh, sense to you guys? A little bit. Yes. A little bit, right? Have you heard of Ublek? Oh, yes, yes. I've made Ublek. Oh, you have. It's a nod to a Dr. Seuss book. Um, and Ublek is just cornstarch and water. And it forms a non-Newtonian fluid. And this story came out in physical review letters. And uh, a examples of non-Newtonian fluids are like um, ketchup, toothpaste, shampoo, paint, blood. Um, for instance, like cap- ketchup flows more easily when pressure is applied to it versus when not. That's why ketchup is hard in the bottle. But if you put some pressure behind it, it turns very easily into a viscous fluid. Very classic example here. This oobleck, as we had mentioned, uh, you can find vi- millions of videos online. of You basically, if you were just to stand in a tub of it, you would sink right to the bottom and you would it'd be like quicksand. But if you punch it or try to run across it, you can do it with no problem whatsoever. The more force you apply to the oobleck, the starch water solution, um, the more it pushes back for a short period of time. And once that strong force is dissipated, i.e. you jumped up and down and now you're not moving, it will it will return it to a fluid state here. So it's a very interesting physics problem. And as it turns out, these type of fluids, in particular Ublek, physicists weren't quite sure why they were doing it. 2016, and it was a great source of nerd rage and debate among physicists <laughs> not for decades, really. And Nerd rage. Nerd rage. <laughs> <Like that. laughs> 
what they did gr- agree upon was that the non-Newtonian flu- uh, fluids are colloids. Uh, colloids are really cool. Uh, colloids are like when you have a particle suspended in a fluid. It's not dissolved in the fluid. It's suspended in it. Like think about milk. Uh, unlike like if you had a glass of pond water, which is real murky, if you left that sit on the desk for a long time, all that particulate would settle out. Whereas milk, that's just proteins and fat all bound together. It's not dissolved into the water matrix. It is suspended in there, and you can leave it there for 100 years. Uh, and it, Well, it would turn bad, but if it didn't turn bad, it would just stay completely suspended. That's because gravity applies less of a force on those particles in the solution than does like the electrostatic forces, hydrogen bonding, friction. All those other things are beating out gravity to keep it in suspension, not not um i just said it not uh uh oh my gosh the word no not no when you mix two things together and they become dissolved (laughs) not dissolved (laughs) i'm a scientist um so (laughs) not dissolved a colloid is not dissolved it's important distinction there here so um so it kind of goes back to that so one of the theories that were has been proposed over many years was that uh, as to why the non-Newtonian fluid worked in this way was, was they thought that because the friction between those suspended microparticles of the this cornstarch locked them in place to resist the flow of a liquid. And other physicists believe that it was a hydrodynamic force that was to blame, i.e. the microparticles are pushed really close together with the impact. So you have kind of a solution that is a colloid. When you impact it, all of that water and starch is pressed together very tightly, and the liquid between the starch molecules is forced out. And when it is forced out between those starch molecules, it produces a lot of friction, and the resistance slows it down long enough to put a lot of force back on whatever was hitting it. And they call these things hydroclusters. So who is right? Is it, you know, um, is it microparticles locked in place resisting flow is it is it a friction based thing well this is all deeply satisfying they were both right so the two competing <laughs> theories are actually complementary they found out they did some insane computer modeling using supercomputers and they finally pretty much locked in that it is both factors that are coming into it and uh, the lead author of the paper John Royer stated that uh, this transition demonstrates that shear thickening is driven primarily by friction contact primarily by friction with hydrodynamic forces playing a somewhat supporting role at lower concentrations of the particles when the mixture is less dense i.e it's the friction of the molecules causing a majority of it uh but that little those little bubbles the the hydro clusters where water is being forced between them plays a little bit of a role too here so um so there you have it that is that is that is science in a nutshell this week i gave like kind of Physics and psychology this week. It was n- not molecularly biologically related at all. Love it. <sighs> and I'm done talking. I just want to point out that I am now the owner of the ionchannel.com. Yay! So if any of you, if any of you suckers were out there trying to get that domain, you do realize that we're not live. So I've had it for probably two days now just so. don't buy ionchannelpodcast.com he has not <laughs> gotten that one yet don't, don't care you can play this game all day like you're like yeah. hmm. i got the one i want everything else the ion channel that is actually a really good grab for a domain name as well so go christian and team i was surprised the ionchannel.com just in fact they're all available dot net dot weed dot heroin i don't know they're all there yeah, that is that is interesting. So uh, good grab, and uh, I'm sure it will be a great show. So time to move on to our last segment. Boom! Yay, Carolina! All right. So I didn't like my initial bash, so I changed it a little, and it's relevant to our stories. So, uh, first. Well, so, so basically the way this game works, if you don't know by now, if I mean, let's say you've never listened to this podcast and you happened upon it three episodes before the end. Um, basically, I'm going to give you three events and you have to put them in order and give me a date for them. And then whoever gets the closest wins. So the first 
uh, date is um, about a non-Newtonian fluid, ketchup. And I nice. want to know when tomato ketchup was invented. Hey, I, ketchup is a non-Newtonian fluid. Yeah, pretty okay. cool, huh? Um, I would also like to know when um, the concept of a, a confidence interval was developed. Oh, good old CI, 95% CI, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would also like to know when the obesity epidemic started to become a concern in the U.S. Mm, so... When was ketchup made? Mm-hmm. When was ninety? When was the confidence interval decided upon and or concocted? And when did we realize Americans were getting too fat? Yes. Okay. Christian, do you have any strong thoughts here? Um. Oh God, I'm still processing. Um. Obesity. Should we go back and forth? Sure. Why don't you put are we the doing, oldest are we... one first? Okay, the oldest one first. Well, I would have to say that the obesity epidemic requires ketchup to exist. (laughs) (laughs) Deeply correlated. (laughs) I can't imagine an obesity epidemic without ketchup being involved. I mean, come on, tater tots. I I did this thing where I travel around the world, and this is to your point. And the uh, we I was on a ship and we traveled to a bunch of countries around the whole world and they they w- one of the key guys there who had done this several times he gave a lecture on the smell of countries and about how each country when you get off the ship has a very distinct smell that if you focus on it you can actually remember and his smell of America was ketchup he said it's a sweet. Uh, sugary, ketchupy smell is what he and he wasn't American; he was English. That he associates with America, so that is hilarious. So, sorry. Awesome. Nice. Okay. So, however, statistics as a thing um, probably didn't exist before calculus, because I think that there are bell curve. <sighs> I'm going to have to say that the confidence interval is the oldest. I'm going to have to concur as well. Uh, I assume – now, ketchup is a tricky one, and this might be the red herring here because it's freaking tomatoes and sugar. I feel like some form of this you may have Googled in like in 1200 BC the Chinese were doing something with it for all I know. But <laughs> right, I'm right. going to agree – she's tricky that way. But I'm agreeing with you that being the oldest, uh, since you went first with the – uh, it being the oldest and I followed suit, I will say the year for the confidence interval was uh, uh, 1707. 1707. Okay. All right. I'm going to say 1706 because I think it's earlier than that. It's 1707 or it's like 1963. It's right. going to be one of those things. <laughs> like <right>? 2004 <laughs> yeah. or yeah. 10 BC. All right. So you said that right. they, that's the oldest. So the next two are catch-up and BMI. And, you know, uh, I, I'm going to have to go with – God, it seems so obvious the order here, which means it's not going to be obvious. But I'll just follow my wrong and – unhappy heart right now and I'm going to go catch up and I'm going to say 1843 Abe Lincoln was having some catch up uh, <laughs> alright so so that's my year and my guess Love it. I'm going to go I'm going to do different just for fun I'm going to say obesity epidemic is second so just slightly older than catch up at 1901 and I'm going to say catch up was 1920 Interesting. Yeah, it feels like ketchup may be one of those things where it was made by Kraft for like for the army in like 1939. You know what I mean? Like we just never thought about it and it never existed before. So, um, all right. So the years don't really matter except to make fun of us when we're really wrong. Do you do you want to give me a date for for obesity or did did, uh, Scott? Yeah, Uh, I'll give you a date of not Great Depression area. I'm guessing. Um, I'm gonna just. Kind of again go with my my soiled heart and say nineteen um nineteen sixty one nineteen sixty one all right well this is 
See, I'm, I'm, I made this a little bit tough on myself. Um, okay, so you guys are both wrong about the... Everything. Uh, everything. Um, <laughs> the, so the confidence interval, the one that you said was uh, like 1700s, was actually, the concept of it was introduced by statistician Neyman in 1937. Ah, see. Wow. see. So fairly new. So I won that one, though. Y- yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, technically. With a low confidence um, interval. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Now I specifically said tomato ketchup, right? When I was asking what, about ketchup, like grape ketchup. So, so ketchup is actually uh, originates from a Chinese recipe for <laughs> basically for fish. Please say twelve hundred BC, and I'm gonna hang up this phone call right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so yeah, so so the uh, I guess the original original version of ketchup, the fish sauce ketchup was the 17th century but tomato ketchup a tomato ketchup recipe was first uh found in a a book in 1801 so this game's over as far as i'm concerned (laughs) and then obesity epidemic uh it's kind of a range there's not like a specific day it was basically when the diseases of like infectious disease and like vitamin deficiencies were starting to fall off in the early um, 1900s. And that, so basically it's like, like you were saying sometime between 1901 Christian and probably great depression <laughs> era. And 1961 actually was the the time when uh, there, there was, um, what is it called? Uh, there, there was an organization developed addressing obesity in Great Britain. So you guys are both sort of right on the obesity. Except I'm sort of um, right about everything this week. So That's yeah. really what I got out of this. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm so very proud I'll, of myself. I'm just going to go ahead and say that you guys win and I lose. Because I <laughs> well. I'm going to go ahead and say that I actually win, and I'm going to write that down officially here. Um, I love the fact that Billy the Kid could have been like, I want them taters and ketchup. <laughs> like, like that could have been words out of his mouth. I don't know why I picked Billy the Kid, but I should have, I could have stuck with Lincoln. But Yeah. So I guess the takeaway here is that, um, yes, ketchup did come, <laughs> come along before the obesity epidemic. And that statistical testing uh, in terms of confidence intervals is fairly new. So, the whole science of statistics is actually fairly new. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's just more rigorous now. Um, yeah. And probability is so, an old school thing. but Christian, um, if you win the next two weeks, you will still be in last place. So um, The probability of that is zero anyway. But. Right, yeah, because if I do you as 21 and 8. Oh, yeah, you'll still be 0.01% behind Carolina. Ooh. So, you are officially in last place for all of history, in the, but please, I encourage you to try your best in the next two weeks. Um, Dell is a runaway. Nobody can touch Dell, uh, but he's being disqualified for not having been here the last few shows, so he is officially disqualified. Um, and I don't think Carolina can catch me, so as far as I'm concerned, I'm untouchable. <laughs> but, except by Aaron Miller. <laughs> With a hundred percent victory, Aaron Miller's not. Aaron, <laughs> I know, I know. So, um, in any case, um, awesome, good, good bash, Carolina Balkenbush. All right, podcast listeners, please feel free to leave us a review or a comment. Our show will remain in the iTunes archives for as long as it is permitted to stay. You'll be able to access all 134, I believe it'll be, episodes of the show. Please share it with your friends. Let us know if you loved it, hated it, whether, well, don't tell us if you hated it. I mean, that'll be kind of sad. But uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, um, and we love you guys. We're going to miss you after these next couple shows. Hopefully some of you will stick around. I'm sure everyone will stick around because they love hearing you guys talk. The music was really loud in my ear. I didn't hear what you said. I thought I heard something about iTunes. So, yeah, that would really mean a lot to us. If you guys could find your way there, leave some kind parting words before we go off the air, that would be really cool and very much appreciated by us. And you will be rewarded by, well, nothing but our good thoughts towards 
towards you, but it will still be appreciated. <laughs> you will have no tangible reward whatsoever. Now Thank think you if you got one of the, the buttons. Imagine how famous this is going to be when one of us turns into like a serial killer or something and we're like oh on God. the news. <laughs> serial killer. So is that one of your pet projects? <laughs> I, I told you I've been working on a lot of things. It's very suspicious. Poison cast, weird Google searches. <laughs> fantasizing about serial killers yeah. see but that's why scott is quitting because he has a stockpile of those buttons and he is actually creating a market for his buttons it is that's, that will pay show. for my legal defense when i <laughs> <laughs> if that fails just each. develop a vegan like bovine serum yeah oh yeah, go. <laughs> that's a lot more work than murdering people and selling buttons carolina it's worth a lot though <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I'm sure I'm on some list now. Okay. <laughs> you were before. We'll see you guys next week. Last week's the next full, last full regular show. Please show up. You guys are amazing. Bye-bye. Bye.